everyone, this is Marie Lipman in our Pona's Eurasia podcast featuring a series of discussions about Russia and Eurasia, about the region's politics, and about other Russia and Eurasia-related topics. We'll talk today about media scenes in Russia and in China. In Russia, Vladimir Putin has just secured a virtually lifetime presidency for himself. The popular vote that endorsed his status as an uncontested leader was organized with egregious violations of voting regulations and practices, which led some political commentators to suggest that Russia was shifting from competitive authoritarianism to authoritarian hegemony, a coercive regime drawing on harsh repressions. In China, the regime is often described as having near-complete control over the society, down to a total digital surveillance over the citizens. What does it tell us about media operation in the two countries? Just how bad are the constraints imposed on journalists? What are the remaining opportunities for those journalists who are still committed to professional reporting and editorial independence? Interestingly, the actual situation may be better, or at least different, than outside observers may suggest. But let me first introduce my guests. Maria Ryapnikova teaches global communication at Georgia State University. She has studied Chinese media politics for many years, and in 2017, she published a book titled Media Politics in China, Improvising Power Under Authoritarianism with Cambridge University Press. Hello, Masha. Hello. Nice to be here. Great to have you. Maxim Trudalyubov is editor-at-large of Medusa, also editor of the Russia File, and op-ed contributor to the New York Times. Hello, Maxim. Hi, Masha. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. I'd like to cite two articles authored by my guests. Maria's piece about Chinese media was published in the New York Times in early February. It was devoted to the coverage of the COVID pandemic. In that article, one comes across phrases such as investigative prowess, hard-hitting investigation, outspoken information outlets, new voices on social media, etc. About one year ago, Maxim Trudalyubov wrote an article about Russia media for his Russia file published by Woodrow Wilson Center. The piece, or at least its opening part, sounds surprisingly upbeat as Maxim wrote about an increasingly vibrant journalistic scene, a long list of scoops, independent sources, etc. In June, Sergei Smirnov, the editor of the Russian website Media Zona that covers instances of lawless prosecution, including in political cases, described the Russian media scene as not ideal, but not catastrophic either. The government, he said, does not have a clear goal of pressuring every outlet that publishes stuff not to the Kremlin's liking. I'll be talking with Maria and Maxim about alternative media, that is, non-governmental sources of information, about how they survive in Russia and in China, as well as about the coverage of the COVID pandemic. Masha, let us start with China. How and what did people learn about the outbreak of the coronavirus from Chinese media? And what role did alternative sources play? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's important to highlight first that some of the alternative sources were coming from citizen journalists as well as doctors themselves who exposed the very early warning signs about the disease as being much more serious than originally expected or anticipated. And in many ways, they were the ones who initially opened up this crisis to the wider public. But slightly later, as some time has passed, investigative outlets and major commercialized news outlets, as well as some party outlets across the country, 
have reported really widely, especially about the cover-ups of information taking place in the city of Wuhan and the silencing of those doctors who have been, you know, sharing the first warning signs about the pandemic. So it's been kind of a layered information channeling from doctors to social media commentators, citizens living there and videotaping what they're seeing to journalists from across the country reporting for a brief opening of a couple of weeks. They've reported uh, very professionally about the crisis until they got censored by the government. Maxim, what role did alternative sources play in covering the pandemic in Russia? And how would you describe the difference between the message of state-run media that, of course, also covered the pandemic and uh, alternative sources in Russia? Well, there was a difference, I think, although I have to admit from the beginning that I follow independent media much closer than the state-run media. But I do have an idea what they do, the state-run media, especially in the beginning. There was a difference. I think it was mainly in March when the situation was not fully clear. And apparently the Kremlin at that time had not decided yet what to do, what was the best plan of action. They were looking at China, looking at Europe. And there was a lot of stories based on falsified information, all kinds of conspiracies, blaming the crisis mainly on the United States, although it was sort of coming from China, rather. Anyway, against that background, independent or like half-independent media looked better. They just produced a sound picture and it was a good idea to follow them at the time. Then I think it conformed to some consensus with time that that was an important problem and we all had to deal with it. And what about doctors? Marsha mentioned doctors who were an important source of information in China as the COVID outbreak began. What about Russia? Did you see anything similar? Well, to an extent, but different. I was following the situation in Europe as well because I'm kind of right now placed in in the middle in Lithuania and so there were a number of charismatic doctors as it were who emerged during the crisis Christian Dorsten in Berlin in Germany who was covering the situation from the very beginning from the point of a virologist there were similar important sources in let's say Greece the Netherlands Lithuania as well in Russia we had a strange situation where there was this doctor who became famous because he was head of a hospital that was bearing the brunt of the first wave of the pandemic, Denis Pratsenka. But then there emerged this different doctor with um, a different background, I think, who's uh, essentially become the spokesman for sort of the state on matters of virology and the crisis and the pandemic. And this is uh, Mesnikov, what's his name? I forget. Mesnikov, was he, is he Alexander? Anyway, so here's this well-connected doctor, a sort of a self-proclaimed friend of everyone in, in circles close to the Kremlin. And he sounded rather peculiar because he was this guy who said that, you know, I mean, those who are destined to die will die, you know. He essentially pontificated being philosophical where, you know, normal doctors would just be doctors and explain what to do. So that was a bit uh, surreal. And uh, so my impression was that the idea was essentially to, well, probably not to destroy, but kind of undermine the trust, which is weird, but this is the picture I get. It, it is from, from how I see it. Whereas in places, let's say in Germany, it was an amazing consensus, at least in some point, 
that you do need to listen to the doctors. And this is also the source of legitimacy, including political legitimacy, so that Angela Merkel would appear with doctors or with the director of that institute that is responsible for most of the virological research in that country. So she would make it clear that she depended on that source of knowledge on doctors, on scientists, on experts. And I don't think that was the idea in Russia. The Kremlin mostly wanted to kind of deflect attention from the political part of its dealings, although the politics, the Kremlin politics remain basically the focus of Russian politicians' agenda. Right. Well, being in Russia myself and watching and listening and reading, I certainly paid attention to those doctors who were not so much sources of medical information, but complaining about the country or their hospitals at least being under-equipped for the pandemic. Masha, was there anything like that in China? There were definitely complaints early on initially, as I said, about just the lack of the ability to share information about what was happening in the hospitals. But then later on, there were also citizen journalists reporting on the overcrowded hospitals, the risks that doctors were taking, the lack of protective equipment. There were also really shocking videos of bodies kind of piling up on top of one another outside of the hospital, and outside of residential areas. So just a lot of really vivid images and, of course, also the city being in lockdown, dramatic lockdown that I think all of us were watching at the beginning and now are experiencing in some parts, <laughs> in different parts of the world, that was all documented as well. So kind of like the lack of freedoms to move around, but also just the lack of safety and protection uh, that came out of a lot of reports, especially citizen journalist reports. And were there instances when doctors would fall in trouble because of being too outspoken about shortages or about other inadequacies, the country being not fully prepared or their region, their hospital being not fully prepared for the pandemic? Or did they get away with it? Well, the most troubling thing was early on with Dr. Lee, who ended up becoming the sensation and unfortunately died and became sort of a martyr as well. It was more about just an inability to share sensitive news about the dangers of the disease, and they were silenced by the police. So they were told not to share information. Later reports came out that the hospital also tried to silence them. So there were multiple levels of censorship on them speaking out about the gravity of the situation. When it comes to the equipment, there were not many people willing to speak out as much because it is sensitive. So it was more kind of citizen journalists, you know, sneaking in, coming inside the hospitals, you know, showing some of these images. But later on, the interesting thing was maybe a month or two later when things seemed to be under control, doctors were kind of used as a, you know, as images of things working well. They were shown as very hardworking, successful, as beating the disease. So they started to come out into the media as a way to kind of almost promote unity of the nation and the efficiency of the party, party state and everything basically coming together. So they came out in large numbers as kind of this sign of a volunteer spirit and the strength of the party, strength of China's you know, nation in a more positive sort of spin that things are actually being fixed. But when it comes to negative issues, sensitive issues, there was not a lot of space to speak about those things during that period. Can I jump in just for one second? I, I, I just remembered that, I, I'm sure, Marsha, you read that too, that piece by Maxim Osipov, the doctor from Tarusa. It's a small hospital about 100 kilometers south, southwest of Moscow. And he wrote a, a, a sort of a letter, an address to the general reader at the first stages of the pandemic, essentially saying not to trust the system, not to trust the state healthcare system, which was rather radical, I would say, as a statement of mistrust, which is something that I thought was quite unimaginable in many places, in many countries, because the whole point was that you go with the system, this is one 
staying with this one story where you actually trust the government. Otherwise, what are you going to do? So this tells you, you know, tells you something about the state of affairs in society where you basically have a doctor, a professional saying that, you know, really, you, you really have to be careful and you have to think twice before you get into a contact with the official healthcare system, because you might be worse off doing that than actually recovering all by yourself. Masha, I don't think this is something that is possible in China, is it? Yeah, that would be pretty sensitive, especially when it comes to declaring that, you know, you can't trust the government, especially the broader use of that word, the government at large or the party, that can be very sensitive. You can point to local failures more openly, but if you point to mistrust of the whole system and especially of the President Xi Jinping or anything central level, that becomes a really difficult territory to navigate. Right. Masha, in your article, you wrote that social media spawns journalism, and you also mentioned new voices, probably has to do with the same phenomenon. What do you mean by that? Social media spawns journalism, and how do you see it on the Chinese media scene? Yeah, social media has been really kind of a double-edged sword, I think, for critical journalism in China for some time. But the positive side of it is that it's become a really important information source for these journalists. And it's a really fast information source. And there's a lot of daring voices that appear on social media that wouldn't just appear in mainstream media because these communities are more gated, they're gatekeepers. They might not allow them to go into those spaces easily, especially if they deceive you know, others with their sort of identity, just a citizen and coming in and filming. Those things are not really easy for a normal mainstream journalist to do. So social media has become a source of some of these videos, pictures, even just, you know, information, kind of data points to construct an investigative report. So in many ways, the very early signs of what was going on came out of social media, and then mainstream media has followed those signs and channels and stepped in in its reporting. So it's, it's an important channel and flow of information, of sources, potential contacts with interviewees. Sometimes they work together. So it's been kind of a, yeah, a very, very important force. At the same time, it's also very sensitive because a lot of the citizen journalists have been censored, but also some of them have been detained. They've kind of disappeared from public eye in the aftermath of this kind of you know, leaks. And once things started to get managed, they weren't able to produce this sort of reporting anymore because they don't have the organization of the media to protect them. They don't have those gatekeepers to kind of keep them in check. They also face a lot more risk. So that becomes kind of a double-edged sword in the sense that they're helpful, but then they can also disappear more easily than a mainstream journalist. Maxim, does it sound similar to you in any way? The social media spawning journalism and actually the two merging sometimes, so you don't even know what is social media, what is journalism. Do you think what Masha has described is in any way similar to the Russian scene? Well, yes, we do have some of that. I mean, we have a lot of that too, but I think what we have, at least what I see, those so-called mini-media. This is Natalia Rostova, who's a researcher, a student of media in, in Russia, and she calls it that, mini-media. And we have, uh, for, for the past years, let's say five to six years, this whole bunch of new projects has emerged, and all of those are actual professional media done by actual professional journalists who very often used to be reporters or editors with major mainstream newspapers, radio stations, rare TV, I would say, uh, rare, but some come from TV, and especially if it's TV rain. <laughs> but yes, we do have this group of media, like The Bell, like run by MBK Media, by Mikhail Kodarkovsky, Media Zone, I think is an important thing, Over the Info, uh, a special media that is dealing with arrests and detentions. So we have this group of 
Project Media, it's called Project, just like that, or Project in Russian, which is specialized in investigations. And all of those investigations are produced by professionals, by people with experience in, in mainstream media. So I think that this is an important phenomenon. You can have all kinds of ideas about it, but it does produce quality journalism, and they are expanding. They are expanding into broader areas. So right now, for example, just recently, Project Media, Project Media has started an opinion section, which originally they never thought they would be doing because that was something associated with a very mainstream kind of old school kind of media. I mean, why would you need columns? But now with the Vedemist newspaper, a mainstream media, which used to be one of the leading newspapers in Russia, now being essentially censored and shut down as an independent source of information, probably they see more sense in reaching for this kind of, you know, this way of, of expression, which is, you know, opinion. So it's an interesting development, I think. Right. And we'll talk about Vietnamese a little later, I hope. Because you mentioned these mini-media, I would quote Sergei Smirnov, who is the chief editor of Media Zona, who I quoted earlier from the same interview. He said, the more popular a publication, the larger its weight, the higher are its risks. And he also said that economic survival is an issue of great concern. This is, he said, our major problem. Nobody in Russia wants to invest in independent journalism. So first, I think, Maxim, whether this is what you also had in mind, because it is risky to be a publication with a large weight. This is one reason why those mini projects emerge, and actually quite a few of them have emerged over the years. Do you agree with that, Maxim? Yes, sure. They are emerging because the big media, the more traditional mainstream media, you know, in various ways been dealt with by the Kremlin. And what is actually amazing to me, like, what I'm thinking about when I'm looking at it is how come the Kremlin presidential administration seems to be really concerned with all that. I mean, they have this large country and there are lots of problems and lots of areas where, you know, expertise is needed. And yet we see that there is this something that I can only call micromanagement when there are all those very important people from the very top echelons of power who deal with, you know, a newspaper. For God's sake, which is like really strange. Although when I was talking about it recently with political scientists, actually with Dan Triesman from UCLA, and he immediately reminded me of his theory of informational dictatorships. And so basically, if your dictatorship is informational, as their model, as Guriev Triesman developed theory of dictatorships. So basically, you rule through information through managing information channels and the important thing is what the publics think about the ruler and you kind of manage that so in order to do that of course you need to manage the media so it probably in the end does make perfect sense Right. Masha, would you respond to the second part of the quote from Sergei Smirnov about economic survival and about, well, uh, of course, uh, Sergei Smirnov was talking about Russia and saying that nobody in Russia wants to invest in independent journalism. What about China? Where does funding come from for independent journalists, for alternative media? 
Yeah, I mean, there are several points of, I guess, comparison there, but also one clarification is that unlike Russia, there are no completely independent news outlets. There are citizen journalists who publish online and they can kind of use a Chinese version of Twitter, Weibo to post some of their things, as well as WeChat, which is kind of a version of WhatsApp. You can have many, many followers on that platform as well, but you can create your own official account also on WeChat, but it's not really officially registered media, if that makes sense. So the officially registered media um, are not independent. All of them are owned by the states. There's just the ownership proportion varies from, you know, 51% is the smallest proportion and then it goes up to 100%. So there isn't really the equivalent of a private news outlets that exist in Russia. So that, that's one point that's very different. And the second interesting point is that in China, there's actually a lot of new investment coming from local state into the media. So some of the interesting outlets that emerged online in recent years such as the outlet named The Paper, Pai in Shanghai, it's actually completely owned by the Shanghai government. So the reason why they do that, uh, and actually that outlet has done quite a bit of critical reporting, is because they're interested in redesigning kind of the guidance of public opinion, sort of channeling propaganda type coverage on social media. They're worried about losing their audiences because most people don't read papers anymore, they don't watch TV, young people just follow social media. So they're trying to create attractive outlets. And in order to be attractive, you need some credibility, you need some critical reporting. So ironically, some of these officials, because they seek more public attention and following and, you know, kind of for propaganda purposes, they also create outlets that might produce some more critical content. So it's kind of an interesting sort of messy picture, but uh, it's a state that invests mostly into this media outlets. It's not private interest per se. Uh, so that's a big difference there. So as a result, they face fewer struggles of survival, but they also have a lot more, you know, constraints when it comes to what they can say. Yeah, this, of course, is a very important difference, and I think we'll come across more differences as we discuss the media scenes in the two countries. I would like the two of you to speak about very recent events and how they were covered by alternative media, if at all, especially in China. In Russia, of course, we had this popular vote on the constitutional amendments that I mentioned in the beginning in my introduction that was very heavily criticized, and I hope, Maxim, you will say a few words about that. In China, well, no such constitutional process is going on as far as I know, but a very important law has just been adopted in China, if I'm not mistaken, right? This is life sentence for the violation of the Hong Kong security law. So, Masha, would you start and tell us, is it even possible to cover such a sensitive issue by journalists who are trying to be independent? Yeah, Hong Kong is an extremely sensitive issue, and it hasn't been possible to cover much of any critical line on that issue for some years, and especially now. So we see some of the critiques coming out of, again, some citizen journalists, but also some academics. And, you know, some of them are getting detained and silenced. So it's an area that's kind of the red zone. You really cannot say much out of the line. But one important thing to also keep in mind is that alongside some of these attempts by, you know, some individuals to critique, there's also highly rising nationalistic sentiment in China, which maybe is comparable to Russia to some extent, is that many young people especially young people, are actually very much in support of this law in mainland China. So when I was in Beijing last summer, I've met, you know, just in regular conversations, many different types of people, very intelligent. Some of them have spent lots of time in the West. Some came straight from Hong Kong after finishing their PhDs, but they're mainland Chinese. They really believe that the heart of that protest that was happening in Hong Kong for some time now is really the economic problem, kind of the Chinese explanation, you know, struggling economically, as long as that gets fixed, we can help them fix it, they're going to be fine. There's nothing ideological about it. They're not idealistic. They're not political. It's just all economic grievances. So there was this really vast gap in kind of understanding. There was no empathy for, some, for any of these causes. They were kind of on a more idealistic level that I think a lot of young Hong Kongers actually feel. So I haven't met really almost anyone amongst kind of younger Chinese you know, students or faculty who would say, yeah, I really understand exactly what they're doing and why they're doing it. 
it was really interesting and, and many of them were quite frank and they were willing to engage in a discussion but they also had a really strong sentiment that this is really a domestic issue which is very much the line of the party it's about domestic security and their creating disorder and also the main problem is that they're a little bit jealous of mainland china because we're doing better economically so they actually want to have more of what we have but they don't have it yet so really kind of a different logic so i think the critical voices here in mainland china are really not the main voices the main voices are more nationalistic patriotic they're pro-law they're pro-order and they see hong kong as part of china Very interesting and unexpected to somebody like us. Maxim, I think you agree with me. So, Maxim, would you please say a few words about how this whole process of the popular vote was covered by state media to the extent that you know about it and you followed, and of course, mostly by the alternative media? Well, there was a striking difference between the two. Obviously, the constitutional amendments, actually, it was a sweeping change of the Russian constitution. By one count, up to 60% of the constitution was affected. Vedemosti reported that before, <laughs> before it changed. But many on the oppositional side concentrated on the one important amendment that essentially allowed the, the sitting president, Vladimir Putin, to bypass a constitutional ban and run for president again in 2024 and then again in whatever it will be in 2030 i don't know but it all sounds like you know going to space it's like really we're all yeah yeah we're discussing things like 2036 and anyway so everyone's been talking about this and this is a very important change so independent media especially alternative mini media were highly critical of, of that move saw it as a authoritarian change and comparing russia to other countries that changed that did similar change uh, has become common. There are countries in Africa that do it. There are lots of countries in Latin America that did that when presidents were getting rid of presidential term limits. So that became a subject. Also, basically, this whole discussion of one you know, sitting head of state continuing indefinitely does immediately remind anyone who remembers anything in Russia that we did have in our history long, long periods of time when the country was ruled by one person and those really never were the most successful times. Although the last one with Leonid Brezhnev is kind of considered golden age for some reason, sort of in popular imagination, which is a separate subject, I'm going into this. But basically, yes, there was a difference in coverage and the state-run media were essentially saying that those were amendments about social change. I mean, they would almost never mention that one amendment about zeroing in or whatever you call it, about discarding the term limits. For the president, they would talk about the social parts of it. I don't know, minimum wage, the the amendment that says that Russia will never allow any secession of any territory, something like that. And Putin would mention lots of those amendments, but almost never, I think, with one exception, almost never the amendment about the term limits. And on the opposition side, all the talk was about the term limits. So I think that's probably the main difference. Right. Yeah. And of course, there was a lot of information about rigging and reports of actual fraud. Oh, yes, yes. After it all ended. Yes, uh, yes. And there was this by now very well known report by Spielkin, the mathematician who has a, a way of counting that. And he came up with a figure that's very different from the official figure. So yes, we had a lot of that too. Yes. 
Right. Yeah. So it is conventional wisdom among independent journalists in Russia and their readership, of course, that it was a highly fraudulent election. Well, Masha, I would like you to probably remember an episode of an especially daring coverage. What are the risks involved? And maybe you can cite an example of what might happen to a journalist who crosses the red line. And then, Maxime, probably you'd tell us briefly the story of Vietnamese after that. Yeah, I guess in terms of finding the one example, it's a little tricky because there are many examples that are more routine, but they don't necessarily cross the red, red line because most journalists don't do that in China. They tend to stay away from there. They tend to operate in what I describe also in my book and other work as the gray zone. And that's the zone where one can talk about corruption at the provincial and local level. One can talk about failures in infrastructure projects. One can talk about major disasters and crises. But, you know, we don't really see coverage like we do in Russia, where one could question the entire kind of system. For example, Xi Jinping's term limits is kind of the equivalent, right? He got rid of the term limits, so he's allowed to be the party leader indefinitely, although similar to Putin, he, he promised to kind of step down at some point. Supposedly, he's not there to stay forever, but, you know, he has the right to do so. And there isn't even a particular date, there, so it's almost even more kind of, I don't know, abstract, I guess. But, but nobody could really write about that and question that directly. The professor who did, Su Jiang Rong from Tsinghua University, was arrested, I think it was yesterday. 20 guards came to his house and took him out um, of his house, and he's being held in detention. He's a very famous legal scholar from Tsinghua University, one of China's top universities. He was questioning that the rule of Xi Jinping is becoming much more kind of uh, similar to Mao, where there's a personality cult and there's lack of any accountability on his power. But in the media itself, we don't have such voices questioning these sort of rules and new steps in kind of concentrating power because it's too sensitive. So the kind of daring coverage we see includes, in particular, the recent example of COVID-19 would include questioning how some of these silencing mechanisms worked for about a period of something like a month where the disease kept getting out of hand, but nobody really knew about it. So the most uh, impressive coverage I found is still being done by Caixin magazine. It's, it's an in-depth magazine out of Beijing. They do more economic and business coverage, and their reporting consisted of four parts. It's like 70 pages long altogether. And it's really a step-by-step -step kind of explanation of how things went wrong at that market, how the doctors were silenced, and also how some of the bureaucratic mishaps worked, where one bureaucracy was allowed to speak about it, one wasn't. Why are the laws the way they are that are you know, silencing people when they speak about infectious diseases? So it's really kind of tackled every detail of, you know, why we didn't know about this for such a long time. And some of it also targeted some central level um, policy apparatus. So not Xi Jinping himself, but some of the central bureaucracies and how they, you know, did something wrong that kind of didn't allow for this to be discussed more widely and, and why the information wasn't available. So that to me is, is some of the most impressive coverage because it's so detailed and scientific, um, it's not particularly provocative. And actually it stayed around. I think it's still available. Many of the reports have been censored, but this report is still accessible. And as far as I know, the journalists did not get in trouble. So the, the kind of issues where you get in trouble, it's when you directly provoke, again, the leader, the system, kind of, uh, the, you create some movements uh, about succession when it comes to Tibet, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Xinjiang is completely off limits, the Uyghur region where, you know, there are mass allegations of detention camps. So those kind of issues are not discussed. So basically, we don't see a whole lot of cases of somebody directly getting in trouble because for the most part, they stay within the gray zone. So what can happen to them is they can lose their job. They can have a hard time getting rehired. They may get criticized from within the outlet. They may also have to write a self-criticism report, kind of a Soviet-style sort of a report where you have to actually criticize yourself publicly. So you can have all kinds of different ways to be reined in, but being jailed, detained, and especially physically assaulted, those are kind of the last case scenario that happen pretty rarely. 
Right. Well, journalists, of course, also get in trouble in Russia, but I guess our gray zone, or whatever you call it, something that you can get away with, seems to be much broader than in China. However, Vietnamese is a case in point, and I will not introduce this topic. I think, Maxim, you can tell everything yourself. Just please try to be brief, if possible. Well, yes, I will try, although I did work with the Vietnamese for a long time. So I was part of the launching team. So it's an issue close to my heart, inevitably. We started the Vietnamese as an independent business newspaper back in 1999. And originally, the publishers were Americans, Dow Jones, the Brits, the company that was at the time publishing the Financial Times. And there was an entrepreneur from the Netherlands who has been working in Russia for a long time. Anyway, so we had that uh, group of publishers who were very good as publishers because they were never ever interested in running the editorial policy, which was all the job of the actual editorial office and the editors. So it was an important project. And well, fast forward to recent events, and we see that it was gradually reined in, in stages, And by now we know that the idea was to actually stop it, silence it, which myself, I have to be frank, I watched in disbelief again, because I never thought in, you know, the years 2010s, 2015, when this law appeared, the law capping the foreign ownership of media, which many told us later was actually aimed at Vedemisti as one of the main targets, not just Vedemisti, but Vedemisti was a very important target of that law. So there's this entire law, you go at those kinds of lengths to do that, to silence a media, you create a law, then the media changes hands, then you appoint sort of an owner, then you, I mean, you the Kremlin, then you disappointed with that owner, you change that owner to a different owner, and that Basically, what happened recently now, Vietnamese has a new owner that is even closer to the Kremlin, and apparently they just running the editorial policy directly. So this is the change from a freedom of editorial content to total control, which is, you know, this is amazing. And you really, I mean, need to be into this as an administration, right? To go into all those lengths and all those details to run a media that reaches, I don't know, at the very most, 200,000 people is, is like if we were generous, because Vietnamese has never been a kind of a really mass product. It has... Uh, always aimed at this kind of prime audience of uh, uh, sort of upper-level uh, bureaucrats, businesses, and educated readership. Something that you sort of, as a Kremlin or as any ruler, you probably have to be relaxed about. You know, these people are never satisfied, so you know, forget about them. No, it means that uh, basically even that is important, and now they have closed that window also. But, you know, to conclude, I would just say that, uh, indeed, Masha, you were right when you said that uh, we do have in Russia much more of, of that gray zone, of something that you could do despite the desires of the ruling group, because this kind of regime that Russia has is sort of leaky. It's not complete. It's not really like fully, fully running the show. There are lots of ways where you can express yourself, 
What does it mean in reality? I mean, we can argue, but it definitely means that lots of um, opportunities for expression that simply fall through the cracks and somehow, you know, reach the audience despite all attempts of the ruling system, of the political system. Right. Well, unfortunately, we are running out of time and there are many more issues to discuss. What I would like to point out in the end is that even though there is this major difference between Russia and China, that we in Russia have privately owned media as opposed to China, still the government in Russia has virtual unlimited power to orchestrate the redistribution of media ownership. So that more and more media outlets, especially larger, slightly larger ones, are in loyal hands. And this is the Russian government's way of keeping under control, not absolutely, but significantly, the media scene that has outlets that are privately owned. Thank you both for a very interesting conversation. I wish we had more time. Thank you. Thank you.